From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe again from you. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Naps Chat. I'm Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors. This past week, the Senate confirmed the last Biden nominee to the Postal Board of Governors, Anton Hajar. Ron Stroman and Amber McReynolds were confirmed earlier this month. So for the first time in more than a decade, the board has a full complement of governors. On this week's edition of NAPS Chat, I welcome Representative Pete Sessions, a senior member of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. The congressman represents a Texas district located south of Dallas and north of San Antonio, which includes Waco and College Station. I have known the congressman, believe it or not, for the past quarter century. We first met in 1997 when Representative Sessions was a freshman member and he joined the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, at that time chaired by Representative Dan Burton of Indiana. Representative Sessions was from the communications field. That is, he was an executive for Bell South, and that served him well as he pivoted to hard copy communications relating to the Postal Service. In his early years, Mr. Sessions worked closely and in a bipartisan basis with Representative Danny Davis when they both served on the House Postal Subcommittee. The House Republican leadership noted Congressman Sessions' diligence as he progressed, becoming the chairman of the National Congressional Republican Campaign Committee and then the chairman of the all-powerful House Rules Committee. Unfortunately, Congressman Sessions was forced to take a two-year hiatus from the House of Representatives for 2018 and 2019, but returned to the House in 2020 and find himself where his career began on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Congressman Sessions, welcome to NAPS Chat. Thank you so very much. What a pleasure it is to not only join you, but also so many of your colleagues and the men and women uh, who work for the United States Postal Office in their service to the people of the United States of America. You know, Bob, to hear some of the uh, language that you used, it is all true. We served on the Postal Subcommittee, the last Postal Subcommittee that we had. And the avenues of service that I had a chance to be a part of include, and I, he's even a friend of mine today, a man named Stan Waltrip, who was out of Doney, Texas, Freestone County, Texas, who had, uh, he was a rural letter carrier. And uh, I went, uh, I think, twice on his, what I would call a route. I was a paper boy as a boy. But he had a rural route that wound through many parts of the congressional district that I represented. And, Bob, my arm was sore for two <laughs> weeks. And I learned not only the interaction and the importance of letter carriers, whether it is in a city, whether it's in a suburb, or whether it's a rural route, the uh, the the affirmation that people give back to their postmen, the men and women who not only drive the back roads of this country, but who greet people and care about them. They know people by name. They, they're in some respects, uh, just like police officers, they've been in people's houses. People, uh, in, most people enjoy 
police officers, but in this case, I know of no one that does not want their postman uh, to be a part of what they're doing. They tell a postman what to be expecting. The postman remembers. It is a relationship that is very, very powerful and one which I no longer respect, but have seen firsthand. And so that led me to the bipartisan effort where we have not only cared about the men and women, the letter carriers, the supervisors, the postmasters, but we've been concerned with the customers to make sure that the customers receive not only uh, their money's worth, but that we take care of the men and women, including their pensions, including their health care. And it's a delight for me to be with each of you today. So I want to start up, and this is a great opportunity to ask you this question because of, you know, you carried her out with the rural letter carrier. What is your first recollection of having either sent or received mail? Well, I remember uh, probably a, a 16 cent postage. Uh, I was a Boy Scout and I did stamp collecting merit badge. And uh, we had a Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, that was red, a simple stamp. And I remember seeing that simple stamp. Uh, and my father, who was also an Eagle Scout, taught me that as mail would come in, we would clip the stamps that were on there just by cutting uh, the corner of the uh, letters that came. He was a lawyer uh, at the time and would take these, he would bring back uh, used letters that have stamps on them, and we began looking at them. There was not a robust collection, but there, there were stamps, and I became a stamp collector, got my stamp collecting merit badge, began recognizing that much of the important and beautiful things about our past, uh, about uh, items of interest in the United States, and saw the post office as that uh, opportunity through its stamp to sell America. You spoke a couple of moments ago about the bipartisanship working with, uh, for example, Congressman Danny Davis. I'm just curious about your insight that because over the past year and a half, there's been a lot of controversy generated about the Postal Service. It, why do you think it's become a political pinata of sort? Well, perhaps you're exactly spot on. Perhaps you're uh, viewing this from, from, uh, uh, from a perspective that people have allowed it to become uh, this political uh, spectacle. The bottom line is, is that the men and women of the United States Post Office uh, understand the law. They understand that every single uh, piece of mail is important to someone, and they are bound by not only their oath of office, but also they are bound by their obligation uh, as a result of being a citizen to do their best. What happened is, is that there was... Uh, there were a number of circumstances that happened as the debate uh, embroiled itself about COVID and about the election, about COVID, about the election, about people who perhaps served in the military or may have had ballots that needed to be mailed in. And the bottom line is, is that there was a, a circumstance that developed whereby states mailed out a huge number of ballots. I don't need to tell you how controversial that was. It's controversial them going out. It's controversial them coming back. It's controversial 
uh, from a perspective that uh, some people felt like that uh, mailing ballots to people who may be dead uh, was not the right thing to do. And as you know, these based upon federal law, that when a, the, the normal circumstance under state law is, is that people would request a ballot. State law allows that in different states, different ways. But federal law uh, allows and requires that even dead people stay on the, the rolls for the second federal election. And so these states mailed out uh, I don't know, there was an estimate about four and a half percent of the mail that would go out would be dead people, people who had passed away, people who would not be eligible for voting. And there were questions that abounded about the use of that, whether they were being taken advantage of. It goes on and on and on. So, in fact, it did, Bob. But I think the post office uh, responded in kind to say, we will handle the mail, we won't be involved in politics, and we will make sure to the best of our ability that when something is mailed out, it will go correctly and response come back in the same. Let's talk about the bipartisanship um, that has emerged now, particularly with the uh, recent approval of uh, legislation at the committee meeting where uh, two postal bills were approved. One was bipartisan, H.R. 3076. One was not bipartisan. That was 3077. You referenced your deep friendship at the hearing with Representative Danny Davis, who is a Democrat from Chicago. And as you referenced just earlier, your admiration for postal employees. You also spoke about your work with Representative Jamie Raskin about postal performance. And you complimented the chairwoman saying, job well done. Can you bundle this all together? Because people think that partisans can't work together for the common good. Now, you're a you're a very strong partisan. We know that. But that didn't stop you or anyone else from working together on the postal legislation, H.R. 3076. You know, Bob, what you're saying is exactly correct. Uh, but it's a, it's a two-sided equation. There were a number of facts and factors that needed to be resolved. You see, if we continue to stay uh, what I'll say in our own corners and send up our own smoke signals and don't work toward the middle, a middle where we can understand each other and address those issues, the country uh, is imperiled. In this case, uh, I think that the needs of the Postal Service arose. They became uh, very apparent to us. There is change in the mail service. There is uh, as you know, a change in the routes, the amount of packages, the addressing the contracts that the Postal Service makes, that they, they, need, they need the work, they need the packages, they need the revenue, uh, but, but it also pushes through the mail and it keeps the, uh, you know, somebody else paying for, for that guy or woman to drive down that street that, that, the, that they do every day. So it's a system. I tend to view that what happened is, is that we needed to work together because if we failed to uh, address the issues of not just notwithstanding uh, health care, notwithstanding um, other matters that were very important in the long run, uh, we would see the cost of a stamp rise exponentially. 
which would diminish many senior citizens and poor people's ability to uh, utilize a, a government service that is very instructive and important to all of us. But I think that what the way I viewed it, and as a senior member of the committee, uh, I did speak about my past and my background and my relationship with Carolyn, because Carolyn uh, came into Congress the same time. Danny Davis, same time. Danny Davis and Carolyn are now in the majority. They're two people who I have vested a good bit of time with. I trust them, but we found the ability to agree, and and I think we'll move the bill forward. You just said that you you know that you came up in the class of '97 with Congresswoman Maloney, who's now chairman. You referenced Congressman Danny Davis. I would just note. That 1997, Texas has one of the largest congressional delegations in the nation. There were only three current members of the Texas delegation who came up with you and who are still there from 97, and that's Kevin Brady, Lloyd Doggett, and Sheila Jackson Lee. Uh, Let me, I mean, I'm just going to go off like a little, veer off slightly. How does the class of 2021? compare with the class of 1997, your first class in Congress? Uh, Mr. Levy, that's a, that's a question that uh, always comes and goes. Uh, the times produce these kinds of classes. The times produce the class of 1994 that, as you may, may remember, was a class that felt like they wanted to come in and fix it and then leave. Uh, Washington's not ever fixed. Washington has a continuation of a life cycle. Uh, We got to 2010. Uh, I was uh, chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee and brought in a huge class of net 63 new members and and others. And this class of 2010 has produced a number of names that we are well aware of. Uh, But I would say that this newest class brought in people off of a Democratic majority. They brought in people uh, who really realized that that the service that they had given to the country would mean that they would retire. Uh, There are a number of people who uh, became a part of a competitive circumstance back home based upon the party and its wishes. Uh, But what I would say is that that we got a good bit of of, – ideas that have come into the Congress, I would say less expertise. I I think uh, as a whole, uh, this class uh, brought in uh, people who are strong advocates for issues back home, but not necessarily strong advocates uh, in their working relationships with others. And and we'll see. I think over time, uh, it will... uh, it will uh, mirror itself uh, in a few months and years uh, to savvy uh, people who then realize to get good things done means we don't swing from one side to the other. We try and move down the middle because the American people need to be brought along with any agenda that comes and that, that some agendas that are lopsided one way or the other really don't mirror the needs of the nation. Let's turn back to the postal legislation, H.R. 3076, which was approved by the committee by a unanimous voice vote. In your view, what are its key provisions? Well, the key provisions of this, first of all, is that we had the uh, postmaster generals and I believe the governing board 
agree. They agreed. They agreed with the, with the compromises that became necessary. They agreed with the direction, uh, and they were able to put together a consensus uh, of what was in the best interest. Uh, what I would say from government perspective, uh, they were bringing it to the legislature, to members of Congress, and the congressmen would, would accept and needed feedback. The feedback that we received is, is that virtually all of the employees of the Postal Service, including the workers, the postal letter carriers, including the supervisors, including the postmasters, saw that it was a good benefit to come together to resolve these issues, not just of the mailbox, not just of what we would do and aim for with packages and moving forward, uh, but we would also solve some extraneous issues that dealt with governance, the ability to pay for health care, the ability to look longer term. And I was in particular of some agreement that I wanted to make sure that we could continue to modify as necessary and bring the best ideas uh, forward. As you know, uh, Bob, I worked for AT&T for 16 years in the operations end of the business. And the operations end of any business over 16 years or the life of 30 or 40 or 50 years, there are operational needs which demand not just a reevaluation, but demand the workforce and workplace to understand those necessary changes in order to sustain the positioning in the marketplace and the service that we work for. And that is for our customers and their need to make sure that we effectively offer this on a nationwide service. So I think that, that what we did is it was viewed in that way uh, and we accomplished it. And I feel, feel very, very confident that by working together, uh, we can uh, make a huge difference. Now, this legislation has also been referred to the House Ways and Means Committee, where your friend uh, Kevin Brady is the, the ranking Republican member and also to the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, what do you think the prospects are for House passage of the bill? Well, it is my hope. Uh, by the way, Chairman Richard Neal, Richie is a very good friend of mine. Uh, Richard uh, and I have known each other many years, as you had alluded to. I served as chairman of the House Rules Committee for six years, and we always dealt with each other, not only with respect, uh, but tried to look at each other's own position uh, to, to take that into account. Kevin Brady, as the ranking member of Ways and Means, will be very uh, interested, in my opinion, upon studying this from the perspective that I have. And uh, Energy and Commerce with Kathy McMorris-Rogers, uh, I've already had a brief conversation with her about her receiving uh, referral under jurisdiction. So much of that then comes down to, okay, how does Mr. Pallone want to view that interaction of, their, of that? And I, it's my hope, while I know Congressman Pallone, Chairman Pallone, uh, I don't know him well enough probably to say, Here, here's what we want. But I will, I will trust uh, my senses and say that Carolyn Maloney is the chairwoman of government reform would be able to effectively interact with them and tell them that our product that we have given 
uh, I think would survive the light of day and the scrutiny that would be necessary uh, by their interaction of their committee, sir. Let me ask you to put on your House Rules Committee chairman hat. You could receive a bill that's been referred, you as a member of the Rules Committee, as chairman of the Rules Committee, receive a bill that's been, that had been referred to all, to three different committees. It comes to you right now uh, where you have to sort of figure out a way in which to put this bill on the floor. How does the Rules Committee approach a bill like this? You know, that's a very good question. And I must confess to you, Bob, that most people uh, take the avenue of, uh, they don't really understand the jurisdictional needs and elements of the Rules Committee. In fact, it is not unusual for a piece of legislation to have referrals that might be second, secondary referrals. For instance, in this case, government reform would have the main referral, but there are pieces of that legislation, and it's called revenue, and it's called interstate commerce, that will have a distinct need for those two committees to become engaged. Now, the question is, is how far off are the uh, people who deal with revenue? The different groups have distinction uh, of their own jurisdiction, and I believe that you will find that they will find common ground. Uh, they may change a little bit, of, but at the Rules Committee, if we were one word off in any of the pieces of legislation from Ways and Means or anything else, then I would have to resolve that as chairman of the Rules Committee. Resolution of that, I had a toolkit that would have allowed me to do several things. One, I could have had a vote on it, could have made it in order and would have made a decision on that, or I could self-enact it, put it in and protect it. Uh, under that circumstance, which is the power of the chairman of the Rules Committee, uh, I would have to, or me, myself, I made sure that I would have to publicly acknowledge what I had done so that uh, I did not take advantage of someone. Uh, so all these things are, 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 are bandages and toolkits that come in order to put a bill together that must pass. M many bills they aren't going to pass. They are partisan in nature. They are a blockbuster of one side or the other and not of a balance uh, to create the temptation that then the Senate would want to accept that product. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to entice these two other committees. And then we want the Senate, we want to view the friend in a friendly way. We want them to take us uh, and take our product and, and acknowledge that and, sign, and agree to it and then get it on to the president to get this done. That is the effort that I am looking forward to and going to attempt to do uh, in my role in this endeavor. It is uh, reassuring that the Senate has a bill that is identical to the bill uh, that was uh, reported by the House Oversight Reform Committee, and it was introduced by both the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee, uh, Senator Peters, as well as the as the ranking Republican Rob Portman from Ohio, so they're going to be, I guess, watching how the House bill progresses, um, and hope you know, hopefully they'll be able to expeditiously move their version of the bill uh, in tandem with the uh, House version of it, or at least shortly, or, or to move it shortly after the House considers the legislation. 
Yes, that is a that is a view. Once again, uh, we can only predict what the outcome will be. But if it turns out to be exactly the same, uh, that that then the needs of, of both both bodies will be effectively taken care of. Now, I'm, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about two different issues. And uh, when I started, we spoke about we spoke about our 25 year relationship. But these relationships, there are side benefits to this relationship, and that is the appreciation of staff relationships. And I've maintained relations with a number of your staff members who uh, began you who you began your congressional career with. And Tim, can you talk a little bit about the importance of staff in working with members of Congress and helping guide legislation? Well, in fact, the relationship uh, you you might be called by some a lobbyist in another way, a professional a person who understands your business and can well represent the needs of your business. Not every lobbyist is a good representative. And, and Bob, the, the bottom line is, is that it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you, you want to find common ground and not everybody wants to. And we wanted to find ground and not everybody wants to. And so it was a relationship of mutual respect and trust that allowed my staff over the years to meet the same person. Lots of people switch back and forth. The person that deals with them one year may not be there the next year. And your consistent behavior of not only the knowledge of the postal operations and postal service, but the men and women uh, who needed you to make sure that you delivered the message on their behalf effectively. And we had to listen. We needed to listen. We chose to listen. And we were proud of that accomplishment. You also did something that maybe uh, only a few people do, and that is you pushed me uh, <laughs> to, to two different things. Number one, I attended probably three or four years the postal uh, events that were done in Washington, D.C., when not a lot of people were there, and secondly, the ones in the district. Now, I want to talk about something non-postal, non-legislative, more personal. You are extraordinarily committed to the special needs community. I know you have two sons um, whom I've I've met one. I I think I've met both of them, actually, in Washington at different times. Bill, who's a doctor, I think, in South Carolina. And then there's Alex. Can you talk a little bit about Alex? Yes, I can. And Thank you so very much, uh, Bob. Uh, Alex is a Down syndrome man. He is a uh, child who was born uh, as a Down syndrome person. And uh, quickly we determined uh, that he's not only one of God's special angels, but he's a young man full of love and respect and admiration. Uh, and uh, it, it with Down syndrome children, it is not unusual for them to have what's called low muscle tone. But that does not mean that they uh, in any way can't can't love and care and show affection and do things. But it does mean that it's an intellectual uh, impairment that they have. And in this case, Alex is uh, of less than 50 IQ, which is an indication that he cannot take care of himself. And in, in that, he has a special gift about him of accepting love and people giving him love, uh, but him trying to find that balance where he's, so to speak, his own own person uh, and 
It's just a relationship that he developed with so many people up on the hill because of him and their association. He also developed a, an affection with the president of the United States, President George W. Bush, and they together, working together, passed a piece of legislation to help disabled people that was most uh, ad advantageous for, for just millions of people and in our future, what's called the Family Opportunity Act of 2005. And I'm so proud of President Bush for listening to Alex. As Alex sold the bill, the president listened. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And Alex is an Eagle Scout. Alex is an Eagle Scout. Congressman Sessions, I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of NAPS Chat, and I only wish you and your family the best. Bob, thank you very much. Please know this, that anytime you have someone cancel out, it may be <laughs> any time, I only wanted to do well enough to be invited back. Thank you so much, Congressman. And I want to thank NAPS listeners for logging on this week. If you enjoy NAPS Chat, please leave us a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store. And more importantly, share NAPS Chat with your friends and colleagues. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy. I'm going to